This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. The Bigger Picture on BFM 89.9, the business station. Welcome to Front Row under the MCO with me, T. Shaoik and Juliet Jacobs. This is the show where we suggest some arts and culture offerings for you during this MCO period, which you can enjoy uh, from your very own home. What you just heard was a snippet of a track from electronica composer David O'Brien titled Lost Bear. And that was to get you in the mood for our first recommendation, which is a web-exclusive novella by best-selling Irish crime novelist John Connolly. So this novella is titled The Sisters strange and is set in Connolly's Charlie Parker series which currently has 18 novels under it. Yes and the 19th installment titled The Dirty South was meant to be released in the UK on the 16th of April however due to the pandemic the release has been rescheduled to August to the disappointment of his fans worldwide. Including me I'm a big (laughs) fan of John Connolly which we'll get into later I'm sure. (laughs) Yeah but very thoughtfully though Connolly decided to write the Sister Strange novella and release a new chapter daily on his website. So in his newsletter announcing the series, he wrote, um, and I quote, I wanted to offer readers some small distraction over the coming weeks and months, because if you're a writer, the only thing you can really do for those who enjoy your work is to write. Yes, and people do enjoy Connolly's work tremendously, although um, he's not really in the realm of traditional crime fiction, and he's a bit more of a cult name than, say, your James Patterson's or your Lee Childs, you mm-hmm. know. I, For me personally, I'd categorise him alongside a writer like Ian Rank, the Scottish crime novelist whose Inspector Rebus novels are similarly dark, very atmospheric and based very similarly to um, uh, Connolly's work um, based on the narrative of this damaged detective character. Okay, and so some background, you know, to the Charlie Parker series. It's set in Maine in the US and it's about Parker, a former NYPD police officer who is consumed by guilt over the murder of his wife and daughter. Not by him, by by the way. (laughs) And he becomes obsessed with hunting down the killer for revenge. In the course of this, he becomes a private investigator, but he doesn't deal with your usual sort of run of the mill criminals. Instead, he deals with pure evil. Mm. Um, so we are introduced to this world in the first book of the series called Every Dead Thing, where Parker is hunting a serial killer unlike any other, an artist known as the Travelling Man who uses the human body as his canvas and takes faces as his prize. I know, I see the look on your face, yeah, Julia. We weren't kidding when we said it was really dark. Yes, yeah, so the thing is, um, I know that uh, it's sort of an easy way to categorise it as... Uh, having supernatural elements but in a way this description is slightly misleading it's not wrong but I don't like the fact that it makes it sound cheesy which it most decidedly is not (laughs) Um, you know neither is it sort of Stephen King full horror territory instead I think Connolly treads the line between human and otherworldly evil so his characters are very solidly grounded in human fallibility and weakness and I think that's where the evil comes from so um, here's Connolly in an interview with RTE1 in Ireland in which he was discussing his 12th book of the series called The Wolf in Winter and here he was asked whether evil is a supernatural concept. The books suggest that it can be. I dislike hearing it used in terms of 
court cases. I dislike hearing it used when there's a shooting atrocity and people use the term evil about the shooter. I think it's, it's a ghetto clause that enables us not to think about the reasons behind it. Um, so I think we have to be very careful about using the word evil in association with human beings. Human beings are weak. Uh, you know, if you, if you look at prisoners, in pre, especially in US prisons where they're doing a lot of research on them, the number of them who are mentally ill, the number of them who have some kind of neurological difficulty, that's not evil. That's somebody malfunctioning. Uh, but that idea of what is evil, is there, if we believe in a force of good in the universe, do we also then, in that kind of Manichean way, have to believe in something that, that's its opposite? And the books explore those themes. Most people don't set out to be evil. You know, most people are selfish. Most people are self-interested. And actually, at the heart of the book is a man called Moreland, Lucas Moreland. And Moreland is, is the chief of police in this town. And Moreland gradually gets corrupted. You know, Moreland wants to do what he has to do to protect the town. He, he wants to keep it safe. He wants to keep the citizens safe. But he sells his soul to do it. And he, he becomes aware of his own corruption. He, he's aware of his own monstrosity. And that's interesting. You know, in, in, I, I do like that, that question in the book. So where does evil come from? What is the nature of evil? Is there a kind of wellspring that we can draw on in really extreme circumstances where you look at, at something a human being does and think, I, I have no conception of how a person can behave in that way, how they can, how they can live after doing something like this. And compared to kind of what is that generic human selfishness, human self-interest, uh, greed and need. So I think that's what I enjoy about um, his books, that there's, there's all these grey areas. Um, and in not, not in a preachy fashion, mm-hmm. but, um, you know, just sort of forcing you to confront philosophical questions about human nature, even about spirituality. And as a reader, you, uh, again, it's not shoved in your face, um, but you, um, as part of the narrative, um, you know, start exploring those same questions together with, with Connolly, I guess, as he's exploring it. And, uh, you know, in 18 going on novels, there's really quite a lot to unpack. I can imagine. Um, the Sister Strange, though, adds more to the mm. mix. Um, since the 2nd of April, Connolly has posted one new chapter every day, although now he's down to posting uh, Mondays through to Fridays. And today will mark the 25th chapter. So my first thought when I read about this was, when will he complete the novella so that I can read it from start <laughs> to end? I'm the kind of reader who doesn't like, uh, you know, the cliffhangers. I want to, you know, burn the midnight oil and <laughs> just uh, read it right through without having to wait for a new chapter the next day or worse over the weekend he's only doing it mondays to friday <laughs> it's almost torture isn't it, it? Is. i think he's doing some social experiment there as well i think so <laughs> and you um with every new post you see all the facebook comments from uh, his readers saying oh my god i can't wait for the next one what's going to happen is it a little bit of a cliffhanger in each one okay i'm sure he's feeding off the energy as well mm. but you know connelly really has you hooked he says the story hasn't yet been written in full and he doesn't know the middle or the end it sounds a lot like george um R. R. Martin there. Mm. And so readers will be able to see something like a work in progress and will be uncovering the nature of the story and the characters more or less at the same time as Connolly is doing so. Well, I hope he does one better <laughs> than George R. R. Martin and actually finishes it. And I think he will. But it's interesting, right? This um, That he's opening himself up to what he has admitted is a very unconventional way of writing. He says that his usual mode of writing is to very slowly produce a first draft, never looking back on the previous day 
day's work and to return to the beginning only when the end has been reached. So no one gets to see the book until it's been revised multiple times from start to finish. And then, you know, this is the process that allows him to rearrange material, reconsider plot points and reposition characters. Yeah, and it's pretty bold of him to experiment with this new method as he, you know, he can't rewrite a chapter once he's posted Mm. it. Um, Neither would he have, you know, time to substantially revise the chapter before posting it because he has to write a few thousand words in advance to allow time for the chapters to be translated. Uh, Just a side note, you know, the chapters are also posted to the website each day in Spanish, French and Italian and eventually, and will eventually be translated into Bulgarian and Greek. He's a very busy man. (laughs) Very diverse uh, fan base. And, uh, you know, the, I guess the real timeness of it gives rise to some interesting developments because one of the chapters had a bit of an error in it Mm. and some really eagle-eyed readers spotted it and pointed (laughs) it out and it became a bit of a debate on his Facebook page. Um, You'll have to read it to find out what it is. Nothing major. But um, I think that just shows there's somewhat of an interactive process there as well, Um, which would be interesting for an author. I think usually they don't have that, right? Like you said, feeding of that energy. So, I mean, I've... uh, powered through the chapters of uh, The Sister Strange so far um, even though I wanted to wait but I couldn't um, <laughs> it started off a bit slow um, at first it seems like it might just be a sort of normal crime story but pretty soon that distinctive Connolly touch with introducing the supernatural and the evil and very twisted um, you know characters okay. um, that appears and uh, you know just a note chapter 22 is particularly chilling but I just wanted to share I know you're not um, uh, this is sort of your, your first time hearing and discovering about John Connolly. I just wanted to share one passage from the novella that gives you an idea of the kind of writing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm quoting here. And then the strangest thing happened. The only way I can describe it is that Ron Booker's face contorted into a smile, but the smile wasn't his. And a presence peered from behind his eyes that had no right to be in his head, like an intruder staring out from the windows of a familiar house. Oh, that's chilling. Ooh, hair standing up. Oh, that is chilling. Um, And you know, another thing about Connelly's writing, music is actually a big part of it. Um, Something I think you'd guess from the fact that he writes about a detective named Charlie Parker. Charlie Parker, Parker, jazz influence there, (laughs) yes. Of course. And He's compiled six soundtracks, which are released as limited edition CDs with his novels. The music, which is an eclectic mix of sort of indie, folk, Americana and electronica, they kind of reflect the mood of the books and the character of Charlie Parker. Mm, Yes, uh, sort of quite mellow, a little bit um, dark Mm. as well. Very atmospheric, of course. And he's uh, talked about in previous interviews how um, sometimes it's, it's music that plays in the background while he's writing or when he's finished writing, Writing, it's sort of uh, what he plays to help himself to recharge and and uh, get back in the mood again. Very interesting. Mm. He's, he obviously needs a lot of feedback around him to mm, inform stimuli, his... Uh, stimuli and feedback mm. to sort of uh, inform his writing, whether it's from his fans or mm. you know, just music or anything. And I think I like the idea of an author being having so many different influences and it, I think it enriches um, their writing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So for the Sister Strange novella, um, similar thing. He's working actually with a composer called David O'Brien who records it. Unboy, and uh, you heard a little bit of that uh, earlier. And David is putting up three new tracks on Bandcamp every Wednesday until the story is completed. And so uh, it's it's a more of a very strong electronica sound there. Um, but I guess that's uh, the sound that uh, Connolly is going for to to accompany the chapters as you read them. Um, 
You know, if American crime fiction isn't your thing, um, Connolly is also extremely prolific in other genres. He's published um, a fantasy novel called The Book of Lost Things, which retells fairy tales as part of its narrative. There's also a book called He, which is a fictional biography of Stan Laurel of Laurel and Hardy fame. Okay. Um, there's two collections of short fiction, three young adult novels. There's a science fiction trilogy <laughs> written with his partner, um, Jennifer Ridyard, who's a South African journalist and author. And there are three volumes of non-fiction. So plenty for you to explore if you don't really like the traditional um, crime fiction kind of uh, genre. So um, do check out uh, The Sisters Strange on his website, johnconnollybooks.com or you can follow him on his Facebook page at John Connolly Books, where uh, you'll get uh, each chapter as it's posted as well. We'll take a quick break now and come back with our sec- second recommendation later. But first, here's one of the tracks from John Connolly's first compilation of music, Summer Dress by Red House Painters. Summer dress Makes you more beautiful than the rest Loveliest girl that I know and the sweetest spends her life in the side. She thinks she isn't blessed. Summer dress separates you from the rest. Easiest days of her life have been back to Front Row under the MCO. I'm T. Ik and joining me is Juliet Jacobs. We're bringing you our curated list of arts, culture and entertainment that you can enjoy from your very own front row at home during this MCO period. So earlier we recommended crime author John Connolly's web-exclusive novella which he's releasing for readers just during this time. And um, if you'd like to catch uh, our very own uh, BFM interview with him, uh, Shamila Garnison and Lee Tree Lin spoke to him on 
buy the book last November, so just search for John Connolly to find that podcast. Now, continuing on the literary theme, our next recommendation of the day is none other than the classic Gothic fiction Frankenstein. That's because the next installment of National Theatre at Home is the 2011 staging of Mary Shelley's classic novel Frankenstein. It was adapted for the stage by Nick Deere, directed by Danny Boyle, and stars Johnny Lee Miller and Benedict Cumberbatch. Yeah, and Mary Shelley started writing Frankenstein, or the modern Prometheus, when she was only 18. And the first edition of the book was published two years later in 1818, albeit anonymously. Mm. And it tells the story of Victor Frankenstein, a gifted and you know somewhat unhinged scientist who succeeds in bringing to life a being of his own creation. But instead of the perfect specimen that he had imagined it to be, the creature is pretty hideous and, well, mm. you know, just grotesque. Yes. And in various depictions of the creature, it is often shown to have a ghostly pallor with stitches across the body, um, reflecting how the shape of a man was created from grave-robbed body parts. And you see that caricature very often, isn't That's it? Right. Of, of like with a nail and a neck. Yeah. And <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> being cobbled, like sort of a creature that's cobbled, cobbled together. together yeah. Yeah. So Frankenstein is, um, of course, he's a sentient being as well. And uh, he's, of course, appalled at his creation. And uh, sorry, his creature, <laughs> I'm just getting ahead of myself, aren't I? <laughs> Let me start with Frankenstein first. He's, um, of course, appalled at his cre- creation and flees in terror. Um, but the unnamed creature, who, as I said, is sentient, is then left to fend for himself in a world that's unendingly hostile and cruel to him, although he is determined to track down his creator and seek revenge. Um, and so, um, you know, one of the common misconceptions uh, of Frankenstein's creature is because he was unnamed, um, people, a lot of people think that his name, its name is Frankenstein, mm. when it, in fact, um, the creator's name is Frankenstein and the creature doesn't have a name. So while largely following the plot of the original story, this play tells it from the creature's point of view, which both Deer and Boyle thought was long overdue. And in a clever decision, throughout its run in London from February to May 2011, both Miller and Cumberbatch took turns playing the role of Victor Frankenstein and his creature on a nightly basis. So you might be wondering which version the National Theatre will be releasing this weekend mm. and thus, you know, which version you'll miss <laughs> out on. Well, you are, you've got nothing to worry about because they'll be releasing both versions. Mm. So the first version to be released tomorrow stars Cumberbatch as the creature and Miller as Victor Frankenstein, while the second version sees them swapping roles um, as Miller takes on the creature and Cumberbatch the role of Frankenstein. And it will be up, um, that that will be up the day after tomorrow on their YouTube channel. Mm-hmm. But, you know, why have two actors swapping roles in the first place? So here's an interview with the director, Danny Boyle, uh, on why he made that decision. To enhance this idea of the creator and the created and that bond between them, we thought we could enhance that theatrically by getting a couple of great actors to swap the parts. Literally, one night they would be the created creature, the next night they'd go back to being or they'd become the creator, the scientist, Frankenstein. It always stuck with me as being a wonderful way in which you can stop a play being fixed, that you can literally keep it alive the whole time. Inevitably, with great actors, what they bring is a part of themselves to it. You know, they're not just presenting Nick's words, they also inhabit it with part of their personality. So you get these very fine emphasis, these differences between them as well. And these similarities, like a lot of serious actors, Benedict and Johnny are both clowns. So they find the humour in it as well, to leaven some of these ideas which are pretty brutal. They're both brilliant actors who love that stage and who love 
exploring each evening the way they do it. It's very satisfying. I think the people who see it once, and I guess most people will just see it once, but for those who see it twice, it's really interesting for people. They can think about it in their mind, the way that different things were brought out in the different performances. And I think we as viewers at home are lucky because we get to see both versions. If you, yes, exactly. <laughs> if you were a paying theatre goer, you'd only be able to afford to pay to watch one and you'd miss out on the other version. E- exactly, you? yeah. And you know, I was reading some reviews and they were saying that Cumberbatch um, is camper and he's funnier and nastier oh. in the monsters role. Right. But uh, Miller is more, you know, there's more feeling to his portrayal of right. it, you know. And then they were saying that Cumberbatch, you know, because he did play Sherlock, you know, another mm-hmm. very kind of cold character yeah, right yeah. you know mm. and, and you know because of that he has a sort of sadistic flair when it comes to playing this Lame. particular cold mm. genius um, also with a chip of ice in his heart but you know <laughs> both Johnny Lee Miller and Benedict Cumberbatch are great actors in their own right and um, like we said from the reviews and trailers their acting as both the creature and Frankenstein is brilliant yeah um, but um, to, to make that decision to cast the roles and to cast the roles were one thing but what was it like to play both Victor Frankenstein and his creature so have a listen to what Miller and Cumberbatch had to say about their experience. The whole point of this really is to have the characters fusing the relationship between father and son, master and slave, creature and creator. You have to begin each night anew. It also frees you from the idea of chasing what you did before that works and arcing towards something in the future. So your preoccupation always becomes about the present, which is always at the heart and soul of what good playing should be. I've never done anything, any show ever before where I've run off stage, like, panting. I feel like I've been in the Cirque du Soleil for a few months. And the great the great thing about switching the parts is that you can give it everything mm-hmm. as that creature, which yeah. gives us license to go about it in a slight lunatic fashion and, yeah. and make it very, very real. We get to really cut ourselves yeah. and bruise ourselves. What the rest of the company has to deal with is not two actors switching parts, but four different characters. Yeah. Bits of my creature go into Victor. Yeah. It's a fusing for each of us within our two parts, yeah. I think, not opposite each other as actors. So as we mentioned earlier, the story follows the creature as he struggles to find a place for himself mm. in a world that isn't kindly towards someone who, you know, looks the way he does. Yeah. So here's both Boyle and Cumberbatch explaining why they chose to take the perspective of a creature that many may find hideous and his actions difficult to understand. Everybody thinks the creature is called Frankenstein. One of the tragedies of the piece is that he is not even given the dignity of a name. A lot of people coming to it won't know the novel, but they will know the movies or the accumulated uh, history of the movies, which robs him of his voice, really. To treat him as a creature who is sympathetic and who, from whose point of view it is, is a much more interesting way than a monster who's just a kind of figure to frighten people. The creature wants to be part of society. He wants to belong. It's a very endearing thing to watch evolve. You, you really care for him because it, it is a man-child and there's a lot of humour in that but there's a lot of raw pain, this, this lost thing as he's called, this, mm. this unformed, highly sensitive, strong, determined fighter. There's certain things that he does that in other narrative forms like movies would lose you all sympathy for him. Mm. Like he kills a child, He burns a house with an old blind man down in it. Because you've kind of inhabited his point of view and you understand in some way why these things are happening, regrettable though they are, you kind of retain sympathy for him despite that. 
So despite the creature's grotesque form and adult body, there's also a childlike innocence about him because he sees the world as a child would. He takes in the little things that many of us take for granted as we get older. And uh, we can't not play a clip from the play. So uh, let's play it. Here's a little snippet for you where the creature who in this version is played by Johnny Lee Miller sees snow for the first time. Wait! What? Wait! What? Denver Air! That's snow. It's not very interesting. A natural phenomenon, no more. Now, please stop leaving about. We need to concentrate. Snow! Snow! We've work to do. Well, you can really feel the intensity there. That's right. And it's, um, I think... There's a lot going going on. I just saw some some clips mm-hmm. of it, some snippets of it, and wow, the sets look amazing. Yes. Everything looks really, really interesting. Um, and uh, you know, again from the reviews that I was reading, like the actors are just spectacular. Mm. You know, all of them, not just the two the two leads. So mm. there's something I think really that we, we probably should watch both versions if we have the time. Yeah, but I mean, really, what um, I mean, the leads uh, really drive uh, the story, of course. And what an amazing uh, combination, right? Boyle, Miller, and Cumberbatch. Mm. And um, I remember Miller, I don't know if you do, but Miller from, I think it would have been uh, the, the, the train spotting days, definitely. But Hacker, somehow I remember that sort of quite lost Gen X um, I missed, movie. You missed <laughs> I that, missed huh? all of that. Yeah, yeah, I mean, he was very young then, of course. Um, but train spotting, of course, is also where he's well known for. And that really brings out that gritty kind of acting, right? The, the character acting. Um, but also, you mentioned sets uh, and costumes. Uh, those are a lot of thought and effort put into those as well. So I was reading that there's a giant structure on the ceiling with around 3,500 light bulbs used in different ways to illuminate the set and often also also shock the audience and thus kind of create this very visceral engagement with the play. And uh, apparently when all the hall of these 3,500 lights were on, <laughs> it's not only blinding, but the audience could apparently even feel the heat from them. Wow. And you know, um, we mentioned the, the train earlier, right? And mm. there's the a steampunk inspired scene where the creature encounters a steam train for the first time um, where they've created this really fantastical version of a train that comes on stage with blinding wow. lights and fire that and it's, sounds brilliant it's amazing it's really a spectacular scene I mean there's whistling there's sparking and it looks like it's coming towards you in the wow. audience you know the way they've um, the whole 4D effect yes the whole 4D <laughs> effect is really coming and so I, I can't imagine being an audience member watching that it must be oh. fantastic well that's one thing we will miss out on yes feeling the blinding heat of the lights <laughs> Benedict comes batch you know wriggling around on stage true, but yes. but you know we've got the next best thing here um and another point we we found out was that mark Til- tildesley the set designer also said said that the stage is often left quite empty to exaggerate the sense of loneliness mm. you know and chose a color palette that was predominantly gray white and black to reflect a frosty cold world so if you want to catch both versions of frankenstein the first version will be up on the national theater's youtube channel at 2 a.m tomorrow morning and the second version will be up the same time at 2 a.m the day after and the plays will be up for a week so plenty of time to watch them both and i think um you know we've got a few long weekends coming up as well be a good time to catch up on rereading the book i think i'll be doing that as well Mm -hmm. um because uh i think i just want to contrast right they're portraying it from the creature's point of view in the play and to go back to the book and uh where 
I, I remember the book being written as an epistolary. So you, you, you read it from the different narratives of the Captain, Captain Walden, I think, and of uh, Victor Frankenstein himself. So that'll be interesting. Um, that's all the time we have for our recommendations today. Look us up on Facebook at BFM The Bigger Picture, or you can also tweet us at BFM Radio or WhatsApp us at 018-789-8899 to drop us a line. If you missed any part of the show, listen to the podcast at bfm.my, uh, BFM app or on Spotify. Coming up at 1pm, Midday Music Machine as always with Daryl Ong and Hanif Baharudin. But we leave you now with a snippet from the score for the play by Underworld. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.